Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a citizens group is frustrated yet again over the behavior being seen at Webster's and Tews Falls, including excessive illegal parking and public urination. The judicial inquiry into the Red Hill Valley Parkway is underway, but it's not going to be cheap. The bill already at $600,000. And have we reached election burnout? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A citizens group in Greensville is frustrated once again about the situation involving Webster's and Two's Falls. Now, this was a gorgeous weekend, of course, and an awful lot of people took advantage of it to say, let's go look at the fall colors, and what better place to do that than to go to those two places, Webster's and Two's Falls, right? Right? Except they park illegally on the road, except there's, they, well, we've heard a number of stories about what they're doing while they're there, too, and it's not a pretty sight if you're one of the residents there. And Mark Osborne is one of those residents uh, from Protect Webster's uh, Citizens Group, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us a sampling and maybe paint a picture for us as to what the residents are putting up with. Mark, thanks for joining us. Good to have you on the show again today. Oh, no problem at all. Well, I, I wish it was under better circumstances, but uh, this is like deja vu for you guys, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, we've, we've uh, fought so hard um, over the years to get a, a shuttle. Uh, that would uh, transport, you know, visitors, you know, to the falls. And this past weekend, um, the shuttles were very ineffective uh, because of the total gridlock on our streets. Well, I saw some of the stuff you put on Facebook. Uh, first of all, the, the, they're parking illegally. And, and I, I think we need to be clear about this when we talked about this in, in, uh, in the past. You're not adverse to the people coming up there and have a look. I mean, they're gorgeous things, and you have no problem with Webster's Falls and Two's Falls and the visitation. It's how they're doing it and, and what they're doing while they're there. That seems to be the crux of the problem here. Well, that's right. And we don't, you know, you know we want people to see the fall colors and, you know, the, you know, the waterfalls and the, you know, the gorge and all that, um, that you, know, you know, we have up here. But the problem is, you know, the numbers of people that are coming, um, and what those people are actually doing while they're here. Now, if you remember, Greensville, for the most part, is a special enforcement area. Supposed to be, uh, isn't it? You, yeah, it's supposed to be. And uh, where if you park illegally, you get a $250 fine, which is, which is pretty steep, and it hurts. Um, but that has not deterred uh, folks from coming here. Um, in fact, on the weekend, I believe there were two to three bylaw officers up here and they were totally overwhelmed. There was no way that they could get to, you know, the majority of the vehicles that were illegally parked because of the sheer volume. Um, we had, and this is unprecedented this last weekend. I've lived here for 35 years, and I've never seen it as bad as this. Were they handing um, out tickets? Yes, they were. Uh, but there were so many cars that they, they, just, couldn't get, they just couldn't get to all the vehicles. Yeah. Um, and quite honestly, you know, handing out tickets, uh, you know, weekend after weekend after weekend uh, is not really finding a solution for the residents up here. I mean, sure, the city is collecting all the revenue from that and, and it's paying for the overtime for the bylaw officers, but it's not, it's not covering our concerns, which is the sheer volume up here. Well, if, if a $250 fine for illegal parking is supposed to act as a deterrent, uh, judging from what happened over the weekend, it's not much of a deterrent, is it? No, it's not. And, um, you know, for somebody who gets stung with that, you know, with that sizable ticket, you know, they'll remember next time when they come. But the problem is that, you know, there are a lot of people that come here. It's advertised in Toronto. Uh, there's a blog, I think it's called Blog T.O. or T.O. Blog, I can't actually remember. 
where they where they advertise this area, um, and newcomers are here all the time. So, and they're desperate to see the falls, and they're parking in ditches and all these things. Now, all the arterial roads into Greensville are signed with very large, very very large signs, uh, you know, calling you know their attention to this area, which is a special enforcement area, and a penalty of two hundred and fifty dollars. But that doesn't seem to deter <laughs> what happened this weekend. They either saw the signs or they ignored them or they figured they you know they'd find some place anyway. Um, and you know we have a big billboard on Highway Five actually that actually you know wa- you know waterfall parking at Christie's Conservation, mm-hmm. and that's a then that's a huge billboard and I don't know how that's being missed. So either people don't want to take the shuttle or they um, you know they just want to you know they just want to get out of their cars and see the falls. You know they don't want to walk any distance so. Um, some people are complaining they can't bring their dogs and they can't bring their coolers on the shuttle bus and this sort of thing. Well, that's, you know, that's the way that is. Um, and that's why we wanted them to go to Christie's so that they can bring their dogs, they can bring their coolers, and then they can take a shuttle to the falls from there as well. So it's a, you know, it's a bonus situation for them. But this weekend we had cars parked up Brock Road all the way from Harvest to Highway 5 on both sides of the road, which has never, ever happened in the 35 years that I've lived here. The streets were gridlocked. People were out of their cars wondering what was going on. We had to call the police uh, around noon on Sunday because we said we needed traffic control up here uh, because we were gridlocked. And reluctantly, they did send an officer up to... uh, to direct traffic, and even that officer was just astonished. It was funny, actually. She was in the middle of the intersection, shaking her head. She couldn't believe it. Um, when I when I see, as you've described it, the number of cars, uh, that's that's got to tell me there were thousands of people there, not just a couple of hundred that were maybe giving you some grief. I mean, it's it's it must overwhelm the neighborhood. Talk to us and maybe explain to our listeners, Mark, that. Uh, how you as residents are feeling about this and the impact that it has on your community when you've got this huge influx of people coming in to your area. And, and as you say, parking illegally, walking up and down the streets. Uh, I've heard stories. of one, 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 Actually, one of your Greensville residents works here at the radio center, one of our, our sister stations. Uh, and they, they're urinating on the lawns. They're throwing garbage all over the place. I'm hearing some pretty messy stories here about the way that the neighbors, uh, the neighborhood, rather, is being treated. Yes, there's no respect. Uh, for the area, there, there there's been alter cost, you know, altercations on the road between drivers and and you know pedestrians. We have we do have a sidewalk up here that runs partial of the way, you know, you know partial way, but a lot of the people are walking on the gravel on the side with their kids, um, and that's extremely dangerous. You know, the safety, um, you know, the safety aspect up here. If as you know, Webster's Falls and Two's Falls get a lot of rope rescues. Um, the ambulance and the fire trucks, they, there was no way they were going to get in this weekend. Absolutely not. And in fact, some of the, some of the violators were parking in the fire hall, uh, the fire hall parking lot, uh, which is reserved for, obviously, firemen and ambulance personnel. Um, people can't get out of their driveways. They, they're afraid to even try to back out into that gridlock. It's, it's, it's horrible. We had residents on the sides of uh, some of the intersections here, just talking, shaking their heads. And we had uh, Arlene Vanderbeek, who was our counselor. Um, she was great. She was up here both days, sitting in her car, monitoring the situation. And, and you know, she couldn't believe it either, what was going on. So, um, you know, we've tried to enforce with the Hamilton Conservation Authority the wristband policy where 
basically the only way you get into the gate, into the parks, is with a wristband. Very similar to concerts and other venues. Uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, the Hamilton Conservation Authority is letting everybody that shows up here into the parks. And the volume, we just can't sustain it. I mean, the environment, uh, the RBG has identified species at risk on these trails. Uh, you know, they're getting trampled down. Um, you know, the Instagrammers are everywhere <laughs> taking their selfies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's absolutely insane. And I think, you know, the residents now have, we're at the end of the straw sort of thing, and we need to we need to look at some other hardcore solutions. You know, I know you've heard this criticism, but I want you to respond to it, uh, because some people are going to say, look, at, all right, it's too bad that it's that way, but you guys knew the waterfall was there when you moved in there. In your case, it's over 30 years ago. I mean, you know, just deal with it. How, how do you respond to that? Well, I, you know, yeah, we knew it was there. Um, I didn't know it was there when I moved in here 35 years ago, but shortly after I did. Um, and it, it's there for everybody to enjoy. I mean, many places around the world are restricting the number of visitors that come in. You know, one of the options that we had on the table that we presented to the Hamilton Conservation Board was an online reservation system, where once the tickets are gone, just like a concert, uh, once they're gone, they're gone, and uh, nobody else would uh, nobody else would be allowed to come in. Um, it just seems that the HCA does not want to restrict the number of people that are coming to the park, and we you know we want that restriction. Um, you know, I mean, we want people to enjoy it, but we want to control the volume. I mean, that's that's the key. I mean, we can't we can't allow thousands and thousands of people into this area. We just we don't have the washroom facilities. We don't have the you know the, the drinking water facilities. We don't have the parking facilities. Um, we don't have any of that stuff that other venues would have. Um, so that's really taking you know that's really taking a toll on us and. I know there are some people out there, like you mentioned, about, you know, the fact that we knew it was there. Um, but, you know, you could say that to people around the stadium. You could say to that to people around Albion Falls mm-hmm. and other, other, other areas, too. So, um, so I think we're going to have to look at some hardcore solutions up here. Um, and the residents, you know, the city, I think, should be really concerned that they can't get fire trucks and ambulance service in here. Um, and the Conservation Authority really needs to rethink the volume issue. Um, and perhaps one of the solutions that we're looking at is road closures, where, you know, very similar to the, like the art crawl or other, other you, know, filming, you know, filming situations where film crews come in to do movies and they close roads and those sorts of things. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the options is to, you know, to just close the roads off only to residents on weekends. Um, and that would force everybody to go to Christie's and get the shuttle bus from there. It, so you've got some possible solutions here. You've got some ideas. Obviously, you're not just saying, hey, this is a problem, do something about it. You, you've got some alternatives. Uh, how how do well, you arrange it? And your, your, your ward counselor is, is very sympathetic to this. Uh, why are we not arranging a sit-down with everybody involved in this? That includes the Conservation Authority, by the way, for, for those that don't know. Uh, the Conservation Authority manages these facilities. Uh, and and obviously they're going to have some say in, in how this is going to be patrolled and how this is going to be policed. Uh, and they, I'm assuming, are concerned about this, but they don't seem very sympathetic to some of the things that you brought up here. Uh, I, I would think that all the parties involved in this, including your group uh, and the city and the uh, the conservation authority, need to sit down and say, look, we're not leaving this room until we come up with some ideas and solutions here. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the residents are a stakeholder. I mean, let's yeah. you know, let's face it. And you know, the HCA, we've been to the HCA several times um, with groups of people uh, where we've spent time doing PowerPoint presentations, saying this is what we think would you know is going to work. You know, we tried to convince the conservation authority that the shuttle running out of Christie's would be you know would be a good option for them, and they could benefit from that. Um, and they rejected that for for months on end, saying they didn't have the room. And, uh, you know, they had other things going on at the park. And every time I walked over there with my dog, the, the entire, these huge parking lots are always empty. Um, and then all of a sudden, when the, uh, when the site up on Highway 5 was found out to be operating a shuttle illegally, um, all of a sudden, the, you know, the Christie's Conservation Area became a great place for the shuttle operation. So <laughs> it's, um, you know, it, it's things like that that really discourage the residents of Greensville. And we have fought hard with the HCA, and they just don't seem to be interested in solving our problem. They really don't. Um, they mainly say, well, we're only concerned about the park itself. All the roads and all of the other issues, are, you know, they fall into the lap of the city of Hamilton. Um, so that there really doesn't seem to be any, like you say, any, any working group um, of all the stakeholders to re- try to resolve this issue. But that, that's part of the frustration. I understand that the, the Conservation Authority, for instance, uh, to your point, Mark, they don't have the authority to close down a road. They can't close down Brock Road. They can't do any of that stuff. But they could be a partner with you in this, and they don't seem to be, to be wanting to step over to, uh, to your side of the, the problem here and say, let's let's work together in this. I mean, they could be helping by, by pressuring the city and saying, look, we have a concern here. Uh, what are we going to do about this? Uh, you can't just throw your hands up and say it's not our problem. Right. Well, well, exactly. And I think the Conservation Authority, they need to be, they need to be leaders in this situation, even though it's not, you know what I mean? Like, let's get the parties together, even though we're limited in to what we can do in terms of roads and all that sort of stuff. We need to resolve this issue for the residents. Um, and right now, it's just basically left up to Arlene Vanderbeek, our counselor, to see what she can do. Um, when the HCA is, is, is really, you know, you know, really 50% of the problem. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, I mean, we've had consultant reports that say, you know, that this area can't sustain a number of people, you know, that's sort of being ignored. Um, everything we've said to the HCA basically is being ignored. Um, and it's, it's been real tough for the residents up here. And, you know, we're very, we're very distressed at the way that they, you know, the Hamilton Conservation Authority actually, you know, runs, you know, runs the, uh, runs these parks. Well, I, 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 I feel your frustration, and, and this is not the first time we've talked about this. And as I say, I've talked to some of the residents, and I've already received some correspondence from a number of them up there that are concerned. And, and it's not just the inconvenience, although that's obviously a concern here. But you're getting into safety issues now, too, and I think that's one of the reasons why I think the city has to step up here with the Conservation Authority and, and, and say, okay, th- this is not working. Let's, let's go this way. And, and we need to have that conversation sooner than later, I would think. Right, and you know the fact that the shuttles are sitting in gridlock. I mean that, and you know that in itself uh, sort of uh, uh, you know threatens the viability of the shuttle. You know because if the shuttle can't move people around uh, because of the gridlock, then that's that's a problem. And and people who are paying for that shuttle service are going to be frustrated because they can't get to their destination. Um, so you know there's there's lots of issues up here. I think the big one is that we need we need a mechanism to control the volumes coming into these parks, um, and we also need a way to control the, and or the, you know, the, you know, the vehicular traffic coming in. And well, I think, you know, 
we need to consider road closures like they do everywhere else in Hamilton for certain things. And I think, you know, that would keep, you know, and only residents would be allowed. And, of course, the shuttle buses could come in. Absolutely. Well, there and, and as you said, there are some possible solutions here. Uh, and the sooner the city and the Conservation Authority get together on this, the sooner we can get some resolution to this. Mark, stay in touch. Let us know what's going on. Appreciate your time today, though. Thank, thank you very much for having me on. Mark Osborne, of course, from uh, Protect Webster Citizens Group. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to go back to a, a story that we've been covering for a number of months right now. That's the judicial inquiry into the Red Hill Valley Parkway. And, and we all know about, of course, the, the issue about the quality of the pavement. Uh, some are even concerned about the, the design of that road, as, as it turns out. Uh, and there have been some, some lawsuits involved in this that are still pending. But the city has decided to move ahead with this, and uh, there was a, a very, very lively discussion at city council when that, that was being debated about the cost and just how much this is going to cost. Uh, the costs are already significant, and uh, they don't really even seem to have gone too far down the road, if you excuse the bad pun there. Terry uh, Whitehead is the councillor uh, for uh, Ward 14 uh, up on the uh, West Mountain. He's going to join us uh, in just a second here to talk about this and, and give us some ideas to how councillors actually going to deal with this. And uh, we got Terry. Okay, Terry is with us right now. Terry, thanks for joining us. Good to have you on the show today. Uh, great to be here with you, Bill, and your listeners. And the uh, GIC is in, uh, in it has been called to order, so I'll, I'll uh, try and keep it very succinct. Okay, uh, let's 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 get into uh, the cost of this thing. And I know you're one of the, the councillors, Terry, that had some concerns about just what the price tag was going to be for this thing. Now, uh, I know you guys got a report the other day that said already you're up over six hundred thousand dollars, and not a whole lot has been done. Does does that number concern you? Uh, well, I think a lot of those costs are uh, building in the, the, the foundational um, um, processes uh, to uh, enable this process to unfold. It's also about uh, uh, documentation and documentation screening. So, uh, you know, obviously at the front end, you're going to have uh, a, a good chunk of change investing into that kind of infrastructure. Uh, so you're not surprised by this at all then? No, because we, we we were told that the the range could be you know up, could be up to one point five million, um, and uh, I believe that, uh, and I think that the number of us uh, it is costly. But uh, what cost do you put on on um, trust? Uh, the reality is is that uh, confidence in the decisions of this council is uh, paramount, and when that's undermined by issues such as the Red Hill Expressway, uh, you have to ensure that you're doing everything open and transparent to reinforce uh, uh, and reestablish uh, that trust in the decisions that we make around this horseshoe. I think this uh, council is uh, in unanimity uh, felt that uh, uh, how do you put trust, uh, cost on establishing that trust in this process uh, as it unfolds, uh, we'll uh, continue building that bridge of trust with the council. Well, that's one of the things I was concerned about at the time. And look, I'm a taxpayer like you are and, and all our listeners are. And, and obviously you want to make sure that you get value for your dollar. And so, you know, when you see something that may have a, a, a pricey, uh, you know, cost to it, you think, okay, let's, let's, are we getting value for this? But I, I think you don't, if you're going to evaluate the value of the report, you've got to, uh, first of all, decide, okay, what's in the report? I mean, did we get value for the money? What What are you looking for in this report, Terry? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for um, the chronology of events, factually, uh, whether uh, uh, the council uh, made all the appropriate decisions uh, in, the time, in a timely fashion based on the information uh, that was before them. 
and uh, if there was any malfeasance, that uh, we identify where that was, and and it's addressed. So, and from that standpoint, then, uh, is there a concern among your colleagues uh, on city council that that you didn't have the best possible information when you had to make some of those decisions about the road itself and 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 some of the other things that that had to be done by council? Uh, we pounded on that messaging uh, uh, for a long time in the context of some of the accidents we were aware of on the Red Hill and ensuring that the road was safe. So there's no question that it was a paramount uh, and profound issue for this council. Uh, we can only deal with the information that is brought before us. If there's information that's buried uh, in the back corridors and never gets to us, uh, it's pretty difficult to render informed decisions. and. I think that ultimately is the challenge, uh, and I think that will be revealed through this process. How deep do you guys want to dig on this? And by that, I mean, you know, the, those that are doing the report, obviously, because you don't really have a hand in this. This is being done independent of council. But but when you talk about the information that you're trying to seek in this situation, uh, it seems pretty obvious at this stage that, uh, that there was some information that was not given to council that probably should have been. But do you want to go to that next level and find out who was responsible, why they didn't do this, et cetera? Are you, are you looking for culpability here or just facts? Well, I think um, it's not just about individuals, it's about process. I mean, no one individual should have the power uh, to bury a, a report. There has to be checks and balances in our systems. There's, there needs to be redundancy. So this is not just about, uh, to me, it, 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 you know, if, 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 if somebody treated this with malfeasance, so that's an issue unto itself. But if our processes broke down and we didn't have the appropriate process in place to ensure uh, that there was double checks on everything uh, or redundancy, uh, then that's problematic, and we would have to reestablish our process so this never, ever happens again. But you already have a process in place. I think that's part of the frustration that you've expressed in the past and, and many of your council colleagues, that, that there were checks and balances and still are checks and balances in the system. Uh, but there seems to be an indication that in in this scenario, uh, they weren't followed. We're, well, that's what we need to establish. Were they, uh, what we have in place adequate? Were they uh, uh, follow, uh, not followed? What was the rationale for not following them? Uh, were there exemptions that they uh, uh, applied uh, in the context of not following those processes? Or were our process, uh, and how is our processes uh, accountable? So, I mean, wh- wh- where's the checks and balances in the context of, a, any individual having the power to skirt those processes. So it's one thing to have processes in place, but if one person has the power to skirt them, then there's a problem with our processes. How was, how's the city involved in this? I, I, you've hired outside legal counsel for this, and we can get into that in just a couple of seconds. But are, are city lawyers working on this as well? Uh, city lawyers are working on it. I believe that we're probably hired outside firm as well to uh, represent our interest in this inquiry. So th- th- there's there's that That's cost. Okay, so when we talked about the cost of this thing, is that also including the cost of city staff and the work that they're doing on this? No, but don't forget that the city staff, uh, the way it works uh, is that, as you know, you were here, uh, your budget. Uh, so yeah. You have a budget that uh, for the year, and this is built, this would be part of and parcel of what they do day to day. 
They're getting paid regardless, right? Oh, sure, yeah. But I mean, obviously, there's you know, there's time. The, the, you know, any any city lawyer who's working on this is not working on something else, and I know that's a concern as well. Because uh, as you know, a member of city council, you understand that you're leaning on on your legal department for an awful lot of stuff these days. And if they they are spending an awful lot of time, some would think an inordinate amount of time on this file. You got to wonder about their availability to, to to get other things done too. So that's going to be a concern, at least down the road, anyway. Well, yeah, well, I mean, we've got a significant amount of lawyers that work for the city of Hamilton. So if you're uh, uh, dedicating uh, uh, this oversight to uh, one lawyer amongst the, the many that the city has, uh, I don't think that that would be deterring us from a lot of the balance of the work that our lawyers do. Now, you're actually working on two different issues here. There's obviously the inquiry that's going on. I, I know that there's some lawsuits against the city, and I know you can't get into the details of that, obviously, nor should you uh, in, in an open session like that. That's really kind of an in-camera stuff about what's going to be happening. So there's that element, and, and when we talk about the cost of the inquiry, uh, there's a price tag for that, certainly, but there's going to be probably a significant cost uh, at the other side there for the uh, the citizens that are bringing some legal action against the city in this. So, I mean, and obviously the city's going to have to hire lawyers to defend themselves against that. Uh, and, and do you have any idea about the costing or the potential cost for that? No, but, I mean, let's be clear, those uh, uh, lawsuits uh, in respect to any family members that uh, are pursuing a, a lawsuit against the city would be coming regardless. Um, I think that the, uh, the, the, the the judicial review would clearly identify what happened with the report, but I think the other piece is, uh, and, and, and the city's taken a very strong position, that regardless of, of, of what is going on here, because uh, we've had subsequent reports, the road was safe. The road was safe from a friction point of view for the context of using it within the parameters were set out on the speeds. If you're doing well over the speeds, well, that's another issue. Well, and that's obviously going to, that's going to be the city's defense on this, but there are still some concerns about uh, whether or not the road was safe. I know I understand that that's going to be your position or the, your lawyer's position on this, uh, and they will probably argue that, that there are some concerns about this. And and again, I don't want to start litigating this on the show today, but I'm no, just no. saying. I was just saying that there, there's there's independent reports that suggest that the road was safe within the parameters it was set. Yeah, and and so that's that that's going to be the debate. That's going to be the conversation, and and certainly the city would uh, stand behind those. Uh, third-party uh, consultant reports that uh, were subsequent to this issue that uh, is now before the judicial review. But were there not also reports that questioned the uh, the, the viability of that safety uh, that, that that really raised some eyebrows among some of your council colleagues? Well, there's no question uh, uh, that there was issues, but again, uh, it, it's all a matter of degree. And the question is, uh, uh, was the you know were the friction tests uh, adequate? Was the measurement? And that's the challenge, right? There's no real standards in Ontario. Uh, for these things, and that's a, something else that may come out of that, hopefully come out of the inquiry, that there needs to be a standard. Terry, I want you to address one other issue, and, and I've received a few emails on this over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we all know that uh, just a little while ago, of course, the Red Hill went and went some maintenance work, and they actually did some resurfacing uh, on both sides, the upward and uh, and downward uh, lanes of the road. Uh, and and uh, some of the citizens have actually said, look, it isn't, isn't that destroying evidence? Because the quality of the asphalt itself uh, was in question, and, and obviously that's been replaced right now, uh, which in some people's minds says, well, that's that's probably not something that should have been done until there was some, some determination made about whether or not the quality was up to par, because we've heard varying reports about that now, that, it, that it, you know, as, as some staff said, because I saw some of those reports, 
uh, that said, no, this, this exceeded all standards, and others are saying, no, no, it didn't actually. It was below standards. Uh, will, ever, will we ever know that now? Because that asphalt that's in question is not there anymore. Yeah, I, 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 uh, you know, I think I'm common saying it might be more in camera conversation uh, that there was some delay in the uh, in, in, in the paving, and there was uh, uh, because of judicial review. I think there was uh, accommodations made in regards to ensuring that the evidence that uh, uh, was going to be before the uh, judicial, judicial review would be comprehensive and full. So uh, you know, I, I can't say that with absolute certainty, but I'm, I'm I'm pretty confident that's what took place. A question on process uh, that you talked about. We've, we've talked about the scope of this inquiry, uh, what you're trying to ascertain, and, and obviously you're going to get some findings on that. And, and a lot of it's going to deal with the process that was either followed or not followed. Uh, but there is a possibility that there could be some personnel issues in this as well. Uh, some names have been bandied about uh, that, that may have been involved in this in, in one way, shape, or form. Uh, is there a possibility that part of this report is going to be confidential that the public may not find much out about because of those personnel issues? Um, if, if you take a look at how the Elliott Lake inquiry was uh, handled, and that's a, a community that I came from, and that was the uh, sorry, I follow that very closely. Uh, there wasn't any information that I recall. Uh, it was pretty open and transparent in all the findings of that inquiry, uh, and even right down to identifying. Uh, an engineering report and a particular engineer that end up uh, have to go into the courts to uh, defend themselves. So you, you're pretty confident then, and pretty confident then that that all the information that's going to be gathered Correct. here is going to be open to the that's public, and we can make our own. That's the purpose of public inquiry is to, to put everything else in the open, all the all the works, and uh, and allow the public uh, to follow that process and, and and have some confidence in what actually took place and where the breakdowns are and who should have, if there's any culpability, who should have that culpability. The, the LA Lake, of course, that you're referring to is the the, the collapsing uh, uh, parking garage, of course, that happened up there some right. time ago, the terrible tragedy up there. Are you looking at that inquiry, Terry, as, as sort of the template, what you'd like to see happen, like within those parameters? I uh, I thought it was very good because, I mean, obviously I had an interest because yeah. my parents spent a lot of time in that food court, and when that roof caved in and I couldn't get a hold of my parents for four hours, you can just imagine what was going through my mind. Oh, sure. Uh, thank God they were out of town at the time. But uh, uh, my mom worked in that mall. Uh, I, was, I was aware of the, the, the constant leaking with the parking lot in the wintertime in northern Ontario, where the parking was on top of the uh, the mall, which was kind of crazy. But having said that, uh, it, it was a concern for many people. And, uh, and then the worst-case scenario happened when it caved in. People lost their lives. And so I had a real keen interest. I followed it. Uh, it was a very open and transparent uh, process. And I want to make it clear, the province... Uh, contributed a significant amount of dollars for that inquiry. So obviously, uh, when we talk about the cost of this particular one, it doesn't mean that the province is, is completely off the hook. I mean, the Red Hill uh, had, uh, in regards to the type of material we used in that, uh, was in consultation with the MTO. The MTO did do some of their own testing uh, in this time frame. So I think the province uh, probably should be stepping up the plate in covering this because it's in their best interest as well, because this, some of this material might be utilized in some of their own highways. Terry, has there been an official request uh, for the province to kick in on the cost of this? I believe there has been, yes. And obviously, uh, by the way you're explaining this, that you haven't got a response yet. Correct. 
Uh, what else is new? I saw okay, but the, yeah, your point's well taken, though. I mean, obviously, uh, they were involved in this whole process, and I know you've got uh, reports, consultant reports that actually indicate uh, the participation of the province. As a matter of fact, they there's an argument to be made that they may not have been forthcoming with some of the information that they had on hand about the quality of the asphalt and the design of the road themselves. So uh, whether they like yeah. it or not, or whether or not they want to get involved in this, uh, they they're going to get sucked into this one way or another, aren't they? And even the material we really used that was supposed to be an enhanced material, uh, my understanding that those uh, recommendations uh, uh, or suggestions uh, came from the MTO because they were utilizing it on some of the roadways already. So there, there's definitely uh, a tie-in uh, in the context of the province. And when we're looking at this issue, and that's why I think the judicial uh, review is important, because when we talk about the process and everything at the city, well, it's actually broader than that. It really is uh, uh, in how this material was selected. Uh, where it's being used, what was the promises role? <laughs> Lots of uh, questions, and, and hopefully we're going to get some answers with this in the passage of time. Uh, listen, I know I pulled you out of a meeting for this, but we wanted to get some clarity on this, and I really appreciate you taking the time for this. Thanks a lot, Terry. No problem, Bill. You take care. That's uh, Councillor Terry Whitehead, of course. Uh, some concerns about the uh, judicial inquiry. Uh, and I, I, I get his points. Well taken. I know this is going to cost an awful lot of money. But uh, for the grieving families, and you've heard many of the members of those families that have lost loved ones uh, because of some of the incidents that occurred on that road, they want answers. Uh, and that, those are the ones, of course, that are dealing with fatalities in their lives. There have been a number of other collisions and a lot of other things going on on that roadway. Uh, uh, way above what you would expect. Uh, there's always going to be some sort of a, uh, automobile collisions that happen on roads, I guess. And that obviously has to, a lot to do with the quality of the road. And uh, uh, also the quality of the driver, I guess, the people behind the wheel. But uh, the sooner this thing gets done, the sooner we can get some answers on some of this stuff. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. On the federal scene, uh, less than a week ago, of course, until the uh, election, uh, and uh, 4.7 million Canadians took part in uh, the advanced polling, uh, more engaged in this election than before. That's a, an amazing number, really. Uh, the leaders are uh, in Quebec right now, which seems to be the uh, new focus, the new battleground as we head into the waning days. So what's going to happen Monday night? Are we talking minority government? Are we talking majority? Uh, the coalition word is being bandied about uh, in not very favorable terms. Joining us to talk about all this stuff is uh, David Moskrop, a postdoctoral fellow at Simon Fraser University, political theorist and author of When is Deliberation Democratic? Uh, David Moskrop, thanks for joining us. Good to have you on the show again today. My pleasure. Let's let's talk a little bit about where we are now, as opposed to well, even two or three days ago, I suppose. And I, I think the, maybe the the demarcation point a lot of people are using, David, is the is the last debate, the English language debate, uh, and actually maybe even the French language debate too. That uh, that seemed to catapult uh, Jacques Meet Singh in, into people's consciousness all of a sudden. Uh, they're not probably going to form the government, but he's certainly having an impact on this election that a lot of people didn't think was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, the bar was low coming into the election for, for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. I mean, they had had a bad year and a bit after he'd won. They were cash-strapped. They were polling around their ankles. And it was shaping up to be a liberal-conservative battle to form what, what people thought would be a majority government. And then Singh had a great campaign. And it's a reminder that campaigns matter. They can make a big difference. And they especially matter if your expectations are low. In fact, one is a little bit reminded of the 2015 election in Justin Trudeau. That's right? what I was thinking, yeah. Same situation, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
This is this is the history repeating itself with different players, obviously. Uh, but expectations were pretty low for Justin Trudeau in that 15 election, and uh, it was just around this time, wasn't it? About a week, a little more than a week to go in that election, when all of a sudden people started to say, "Hey, wait a minute." Uh, now he ended up forming a majority government. I don't think that's going to happen with the NDP right now, but. Uh, I, I've heard some stories and read some some polling numbers that indicated that uh, the NDP are probably going to get wiped out. They may not even not even win any seats in Quebec. Uh, now all of a sudden they're a force, and so is the Bloc. And I don't know anybody saw that coming either, David. No, I mean here's the thing: we're a weird country, and we routinely see big swings. I mean, especially in Quebec. And so the the Bloc was written off a couple years ago. They're resurgent in Quebec. There's talk about them winning 40 seats, which would be considerable. The NDP is probably not going to have a great night in Quebec, which means they've made up a lot of support elsewhere. So they were able to replace what's about to be lost in Quebec with seats, uh, probably a smattering across the country, but especially in Ontario and British Columbia, maybe a little bit in Atlantic Canada. And so the question is, okay, well, we, we wake up on the 22nd, we go to bed late on the 21st, we've got ourselves a hung parliament, what comes next? Which is the question, I guess, on everybody's mind right now. Uh, there seems to be an inevitability that the way things are shaping up right now, with the liberals and conservatives virtually in a dead heat right now, that we're there's going to be a minority government. That seems to be, in many people's minds, a foregone conclusion. But, but we've been fooled in the past by polls, haven't we? Well, yeah, and the other thing is the, the polls often get close at the national aggregate level. So, you know, you've got x percent for the party across the country but people aren't aren't ready to call what they think that will mean so lots of people saw polls that were in 2015 indicating liberal majority but couldn't quite bring themselves to say it <laughs> right uh, so the, so there's always that part of it is also you know polls aren't often in the field late enough into the election to capture late movement so that's a problem too and sometimes they're just off by a little bit you know it's, it's worth remembering that there's a margin of error in any poll Two percent, three percent in a decent poll, which means that uh, you know you, we just don't know what that two or three percent is going to do. You can't know, and yet the that two or three percent can be decisive, especially in a close race. So I would say the polls are are probabilistic. They're projections. They're a guide, but but they're certainly not gospel. As we go across the country, all these elections I've been covering over the years, uh, the, the, we talk about Ontario and Quebec as, as two of the main battlegrounds here, because, simply because of the number of seats that are, are up for grabs here and available uh, in both of those provinces. And I know in the past there's always been some concern uh, in the western provinces that, well, the election was decided before they even got to the Manitoba border. Uh, I got the feeling, David, this one's going to go long into the night. Well, I lived in British Columbia in 2015, and we had sat down and you know, with our beer, but the pizza hadn't arrived yet, and it was over. <laughs> you know, it was a majority liberal government. We we didn't know, to, you know, we, we got ready for this big party for election night. We were going to watch it all the way to the to Vancouver Island, and you know what? <laughs> that was it. So uh, in 2015, that was that. But in 2019, I suspect, you know, even even if the polls are off by a little bit, that the, the race will stretch over to British Columbia. And in fact, if you look at BC, it's probably the most competitive province in the country. Uh, everyone has a chance of winning a handful of seats in British Columbia. There's an awful lot of ridings that, were, uh, that are within a couple of points. So it may come down all the way to, to, you know, the, to Vancouver Island and to, to uh, Vancouver, where there's a lot of battleground seats. 
So I think this will be one. If anyone was ever waiting to sit down and watch the returns come in all night long, this would be the one to watch. Well, with that in mind, then, what you read on what's going to happen in B.C., I mean, you know, that that seems to be, if there's a stronghold for the Green Party, it seems to be on the West Coast there, maybe on Vancouver Island. Uh, there's some concern about that, but their numbers seem to have dropped over the last little while. Obviously, the NDP have a presence there. Jack Mead Singh's riding is, is in British Columbia, of course. Uh, but there's 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 the the independent, of course, with Jody Wilson Raybalt, who is running as an independent. Uh, the Liberals are going to be looking at, at the seats that they hold now and say we have to hold on to those if we want to form government right now. That's it's very much in play, and I don't know that anybody can actually predict how this is going to turn out in BC. No, they can't. And, and again, I mean, we don't have particularly good riding level polls. So we can we can provide some pretty good regional projections, but for the most part, it's it's really hard to know riding by riding what to expect. Uh, so that's point one. Uh, of course, turnout is a wild card as well. We don't know how many people are going to turn out, or more importantly, which subgroups within that total number will be turning out. Right, so we we can see patterns in, in who supports whom. So those are wild cards. Uh, as for the Greens, they came into the election pretty strong. They didn't have the best election. They've tapered off. Um, they have a, some hope. I know they're targeting a few seats outside of the, uh, Vancouver Island, but that's really where their focus is. There's still a good chance they end up with three seats, though. And so that means, you know, and this, is, this gets to the minority question. It might not just be a minority. It might be a minority in which the governing party has to rely on two different parties <laughs> for support, not just one, right? Because it could end up being that the Greens, the Bloc, the NDP, maybe even independents, are are significant in in a close parliament. If we get to that situation, and, and that, that's an interesting scenario, uh, if it's a if it's a liberal minority government, uh, as you say, there there are potential partners there. there. I mean, the liberals and NDP have worked in the past, obviously. And historically, we know that actually some of the things that we, we hold near and dear to us mm-hmm. in this country uh, came out of minority parliaments uh, with the liberals and, and NDP working together. Uh, the conservatives uh, seem to be a, a, an island unto themselves. I'm not so sure that there's anybody else that they can lean on. Maybe the block on some issues, uh, but nothing of any significance. It's not as if they can actually strike a deal and say, we know that these guys have our back. Yeah, I mean, the the liberals certainly have more natural governing partners. There's no doubt about that. And they have the advantage of incumbency. So when, when everything shakes out on election night, if Justin Trudeau chooses, he can meet Parliament and try to uh, test the confidence of the House. And if he can get a majority of support, then he will continue on as Prime Minister. So he has a couple advantages there. Uh, but you'll remember that, you know, in, in the Harper years, 2004, 2006, uh, sorry, 2006, 2008, it, it was the Liberals who backed the Conservatives. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right? I mean, they didn't want an election. They didn't want to challenge Stephen Harper. They didn't want to send Canadians back to the polls. So, uh, you know, it's sometimes the case that, in fact, the Liberals and the Conservatives will prop one another up because they just don't want to go back to the polls. But the, the challenge for Scheer is, is finding enough uh, folks to support him as Prime Minister if, if Justin Trudeau can't command confidence. So that's the challenge for him. And at that point, he'd probably be looking towards the bloc. And you'll notice that Scheer's line right now is, we're going to win a majority. He has no interest in talking about being propped up by the bloc. <laughs> and I don't blame him. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, that was uh, the, the the boogeyman that Stephen Harper used when that that uh, alliance, uh, that coalition was uh, put on. Well, potentially there. I mean, Stefan Dion, Jack Layton, and, and Gilles Duceppe, of course. Uh, you know, the the three headed monster that the Tories kept saying, they, they, you know, it's going to go to rack and ruin. The country's going downhill if these guys take over, uh, and it it scared a lot of people, and uh, obviously, and probably avoided an election as a result of that. But it's it's interesting how these things get characterized, which which. It seems to be happening again because the the C word coalition is coming up here. Uh, now I know that it's not common at the federal level, uh, David, to have coalition governments. I think Robert Borden was the last one, and that's going back a ways, obviously, to the first World War days. Um, but uh, and it was Jagmeet Singh that actually brought up the idea at the same place. But if a minority government, a minority parliament. They don't need a, a quote-unquote coalition to actually try to work together. They they can do this on an ad hoc basis, can't they? Piece of legislation by piece of legislation. Well, in fact, historically speaking, that's almost always how they've, they've done it as well. You're, I mean, you're right. The last time we did this in a coalition was Robert Borden's unionist government, and that was an attempt to um, win conscription. I mean, that was about the First World War, and that was about conscription. It was Tories and pro-conscription liberals. So it gives you, it was 100 years ago. So we don't do coalitions federally in this, in this country. That, I should remind uh, our listeners, could. that was the, the same prime minister, by the way, that instituted an income tax uh, on a temporary basis. And here we are in 2019, still paying it on a temporary basis. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, I, I don't think we'll, and I don't think Singh meant coalition. So part of the problem is that when, when sometimes when we say coalition, what, what we really mean is a party supporting another yeah. an agreement, a supply and confidence agreement, it's known. It's not really a coalition. A coalition is when more than one party is represented in the cabinet, and therefore in the government formally. Um, I don't think that's likely, because again, we just don't do it. But I do think a, p- a potential agreement, with a supply and confidence agreement like exists in BC right now between the NDP and the Greens, could happen, but ad hoc is probably the preference for most parties, because first, for one, you probably get more of what you want ad hoc, and you don't get blamed for the stuff you don't want to get blamed for <laughs> ad hoc. And that's the trick. That's Yeah, that's that's rule one in politics now, is don't let anything stick to you, uh, the way things seem to be going these days with public opinion polls. Is is there time right now, we're just a few days away from this, David, is there time right now for somebody to leap ahead at this stage, or uh, is, is it pretty much the way it is now is the way it's going to be on Monday? No, I, th- I mean, I think a week is plenty of time for something to move. You might even see movements as late as the weekend that don't get captured in polls. And so, again, I mean, go back to 2015, there was a lot of movement in the last week, and there could be again. Um, and, and in a close race like this, two or three points is huge. You know, if you go from 32 to 36, for instance, um, you you could transform the entire scenario because uh, in, in, under our system, under first past the post, a few you can leverage a few points for dozens of seats, dozens of seats, and I mean that's just the nature of the beast. So uh, there could lo- there could be movement in the last week. I suspect there will be some, and it could be decisive. Which is probably why the uh, the three main party leaders are spending at least part of the day today in Quebec because there's there's a shifting allegiances going on right there now, and obviously they're going to try to solidify their stand. I would think. Well, and it's worth noting that the Liberals and the Tories have both backloaded their ad spending. So someone in some background was, was clever enough to think, oh boy, we're, this is going to be close and we're really going to need the big bucks in the final five to seven days. So you're going to see all kinds of ads, radio, TV, online, all kinds of, of, uh, of a massive blitz to try to move people. It'll be largely, 
you can't afford the liberal coalition, liberal NDP coalition versus Andrew Scheer is going to cut every dime that the federal government spends. And it's just going to hammer you all day, every day. And Quebec will be one of those central battlegrounds. Obviously, yeah. We, well, we've already seen that. You know, the, the, the sheer Doug Ford connection is very strong in the ads we've seen here in Ontario. And uh, and obviously, as you say, the counterpoint to that is no coalition, uh, as if there ever was going to be one. But uh, we, we all hate to see these sorts of ads, uh, the mudslinging, but, uh, you know, it, they wouldn't use them if they didn't think they were effective, would they? Yeah, so the, the juries are out on, on what they what negative ads do. It depends on a lot of things, but one of the things that they, they absolutely do succeed in doing is crystallizing in the minds of many voters what mm. the election is about. So it captures our attention. I mean, negative ads work insofar as they definitely get our attention. And, you know, it's because of our old lizard brains, I'm sure, right? We love the drama <laughs> and we're wired to love it. It's who we are. But so the, uh, and, I, and again, if you can do that and frame what the election is about, then it's probably going to serve you well. Well, we'll find out Monday just how effective they are. David, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks. Take care. David Moscrop, of course, from uh, Simon Fraser University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.